This episode of The Explainer is sponsored by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Daft Advantage Ads will maximise your chances. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, why is Bertie back? I'm back in the hot seat as Laura takes a well-earned break this week and Bertie Ahern is back in Fianna Fáil. After 10 years, he's returned to the membership fold after an unfriendly departure. But to some, Bertie Ahern is Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil can't live without Bertie. What does this all mean for the party particularly, but also for Irish politics more generally? Are we going to see him as president in the Oris in our future? Or is he going to live out his political days pressing flesh in Dublin Central? I'm delighted to welcome back journalist and commentator Lee's Hand to the podcast to answer all of these questions for us. Lee's currently works with Spotify, but in her former life, and this is how she put it, she stalked Bertie O'Hearn through several elections and governments. And with that, Lee's, it is really hard to know where to start with Bertie. So can you begin by just very quickly charting his rise and then his fall? Well, I mean, where to start with Bertie is always tricky. I mean, he was a man of many guises, aliases, disguises. Uh, he was known as, you know, Bertie, the Bert, the Teflon Taoiseach. He had so many, you know, different personalities. And he just seems to have been a part of the Irish political landscape for so long. I mean, he, he was in politics nearly all his life. He started pinning posters to lampposts for Fianna Fáil when he was a young boy in his home constituency. Um, he grew up in Drumcondra and from about the age of 14, he was active there. And he he was actually mentored by Charlie Hawhey, obviously recognised some an up-and-coming bright young spark in the party. And he was first elected to the Dáil in 1977. But it wasn't a family, it wasn't like a dynasty. Not really, not at all. I mean, his, his father had been, in, you know, had been, had been involved in the War of Independence and so on, but the, he didn't really come from, a, you know, political royalty or anything like that. I mean, he very much worked his way up through the ranks. And he very quickly, I think, a pattern, is, I think, it was established itself. I think his first election in 1977 even at that early stage, he got a really big first preference vote. And that sort of set the scene for every subsequent election after that. His first election, well, he actually ran in the constituency of Dublin, Finglas. It was then, then it turned into Dublin Central. But this became a huge point of pride with him in every subsequent election he ran, that he would he would top the poll. And in order to do this, he sort of put together a kind of his own very tight knit team. Some of them became partly known as the Drumcoundra Mafia in years later. But his legendary skills uh, of knowing every blade of grass in his constituency, who lived in what house and how they voted, it was the stuff of legend. And it led to some massive turf fights in the constituency over the years. And once he was in Leinster House, then, you know, he progressed fairly steadily, but very quietly up the ranks. He was appointed assistant whip, but the person who was actually in the whip's job at the time, I think, suffered a lot of illness. So really from a very early stage, about 1980, Bertie was really acting as as the whip. And that was where he was able to sort of start to develop contacts within the party, make himself known, figure out how to wrangle people, you know, into directions that they may not want to go. So very much kind of laid the groundwork for the skills. And then he kind of went up through the thing. He was he was appointed then subsequently Labour Minister. And that was actually at a very key time. And this is probably really where we saw Bertie beginning to emerge because he did things like put together um, the first sort of social agreement, social partnership 
at a time when um, a lot of different countries were sort of undergoing a lot of unrest and there was sort of strikes were rife because it was a late, you know, it was the 80s and things weren't great. And he, so he sort of hammered out this notion of a social partnership, kind of cohesion, keep the public sector, you know, sort of on side. Now, there are both sides to that. A lot of people then said, well, you know, he went too far. But again, he was sort of honing his skills. And, you know, eventually anyway, this is sort of cutting out all the various dramas. But, uh, you know, then he ended up as finance minister. And then he um, became party leader. And even that was quite interesting, the way he became party leader, because he was expected to go for the leadership of the party in 1992. And Albert Reynolds was was also going for it. And he backed out at the, he sort of got cold feet and dithered. And even though his supporters were pushing him and it actually caused a lot of bad feeling among his supporters. I mean, various people were calling it things like the rat and the anorak. And there was quite an unsavoury mood at the time. There was one of the supporters of Albert Reynolds basically posed the question, then Minister um, Michael Smith, you know, we like to know where the Taoiseach sleeps at night. And this was a reference to the fact that the Taoiseach at that stage had separated or was in the process of separating from his wife, Miriam. So he he sort of stepped back. And but did people kind of see that as astute political movement as well as being astute policymaking if the social partnership was happening at the same time in some ways? Well, I think it really, it says a lot about the astuteness of, of Bertie, the, the politician, because even though some people were, you know, sort of said, oh, he dithered and he lost his chance. Re- what he ended up effectively doing was going into Albert and saying, I won't run this time, but sort of hammering out a deal that he would remain in cabinet. And of course, when Albert Reynolds was elected, then transpired the infamous Night of the Long Knives, where Albert Reynolds sacked 17 ministers, including eight ministers, in a breathtaking, at breathtaking speed. Mary Rourke's account of it actually is really funny. Uh, she sort of talks about been hauled in last and Albert was there and he, he was eating a sandwich as he fired her. And it's quite, a, you know, it's extraordinary. But Bertie was only one of two ministers that survived the Night of the Long Knives. So there's sort of a general feeling that, he, you know, this was part of the deal, that he would he'd survive, you know, he'd, he'd live to fight another day. And generally people who would be seen as rivals wouldn't survive. This is exactly it. So, you know, he, so while there was a perception that he dithered, of course, typical Bertie behind, you know, he also had another, a total different, was going a totally different route. So, of course, that was a fairly chaotic two years then, which and sort of ended in the government collapsing, Albert Reynolds resigning and Bertie basically taking over as leader of Fianna Fáil in 1994. Now, they expected to, to, renegotiate to go back into power at that stage. But Labour wouldn't play ball. The whole thing collapsed and the Rainbow Coalition, the uh, Fine Gael Labour Coalition came into power in 1994 and Bertie had to go and suffer on the, uh, on the as you know, as opposition leader instead of sitting in the Taoiseach's chair as he thought he would. But of course, um, come 1997 and Fianna Fáil were elected and there he was from 1997 until he, until he resigned in uh Officially, he resigned on April the 2nd, 2008 and stepped down in in, the, in, in May. I know when you talk about the those kind of early 90 days of Albert Reynolds, Charlie Hawhey, you kind of skipped to 2008 very quickly well, <laughs> in, was, the, in the Bertie years <laughs> because that's how long he was around. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, and yeah. that's where it's why it's difficult to know where to start with Bertie. Well, you see, this is it because, as I said, he, you know, he's a man of sort of many parts. And, you know, I suppose really as soon as he took over as, as Taoiseach, 
at that point, there began what I would call the, the twin tracks of Bertie's career and legacy. And one was how he handled the economy, um, how he ran the country. And the other was how he immersed himself in the Northern Ireland peace process, which very quickly led to Good Friday Agreement. One he's remembered for, you know, with great respect and the other with not so much. So mm. he really had a, it was a kind of a career of two halves, you could say. And, you know, when he was elected um, in 1997, like it's hard to remember. I mean, he was the youngest ever Taoiseach. He was only 45 when he was elected Taoiseach. And there was a great excitement around him because he was seen as this sort of young, vigorous guy, you know, and he, he was a barnstorming performer out on the hustings. You know, he'd, I mean, God knows, we all used to have to wear flat shoes when you covered Bertie on the hustings because he just went at some pace. Uh, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands and all that. And he was sort of brought this energy to Fianna Fáil and he was seen as a vote getter. And was that very different to how Charlie Hawhey would have been seen? Because it feels for someone who hasn't lived through it as closely as you did, that that would feel like more of the same, no? Well, you see, Charlie Hawhey had this sort of, he always had this slight Lord of the Manor thing about him. He was, uh, he would have been not quite as as friendly, let's put it that way. And he was a much more divisive figure. I mean, you know, how he inspired fear in a lot of people uh, in his own party. And, uh, you know, a lot of people really, he was kind of one of those Marmite characters. People either loved Charlie or they really, really didn't like him at all. Whereas Bertie came along and he had this image. I mean, he was, he, he was the anorak and he was the dis daddies and does. And he liked his pints of bass and he was a man of the people. And he just was very accessible and he sort of promised a whole vigorous new government. And, you know, in 1997, we'd sort of come out of recession. You know, things were sort of looking, begin to look up. There was sort of a better mood around. So he sort of reflected that as well. Summers were hot and sunny. Yeah. yeah, But then let's stick to around that era. The Mahan Tribunal comes about just, you know, we're not going to bore everyone, but give us a little yeah. headline of what the Manton Tribunal was tasked with, what were they examining and how did Bertie come into it exactly? Oh God, well, it's a real triangle tale. I mean, the Manton Tribunal had been sort of set up in 1997 to basically look into payments to politicians, which involved various, you know, planning in, uh, matters. And there was a whole raft of, of, of uh, tribunals that were slightly interconnected. I mean, there was sort of McCracken, Moriarty, there was Mahan. You know, one would, you know, there was one segment that would might bleed into the other. But again, really, Bertie's travails with the tribunal didn't really kind of kick off until like the, the 2000s, where revelations started coming out about the fact that he had sort of, there was all this sort of money sloshing around that nobody could account for. They were termed dig outs. They were, they were, he claimed, payments by friends, uh, you know, to help him out in, in sort of dark times when he was splitting up from his wife. And it was all very murky, but the payments were enough to basically, you know, have him brought before the tribunal to try and figure out exactly what this money was. And it was an unfolding tale of obfuscations and revelations and a very confused trail of friends having, you know, giving him money in dig outs in Manchester and money to buy, you know, property to buy, you know, money. He had no bank account, even though he was finance minister at the time. And the Man Tribunal really dogged him the whole way through the sort of end of his second term. And of course, then 
really began to take off in 2007. And, you know, he ultimately made three appearances before the Mahan Tribunal in the September 2007, December 2007, and I think ultimately again in the summer of 2008. And, you know, each time he was less and less convincing. And people who believed him and felt sorry for him at the, at the, at the outset ended up just not believing him at all because some of the ed- evidence was just so bizarre and so extraordinary. Now, when the first really damaging story came out about him was about September 2006, when really that was the first time that story broke that he had about, I think it was £39,000 at the time had been given him in in dig outs back in the sort of early 90s. And uh, he was in trouble because this is really at that point people began to think, right, you know, is there something to this? And then a classic Bertie move was um, he took a gamble that he would speak directly to the people rather than issue statements, hire lawyers. So he did what became known as a sort of the very infamous Dobbo interview or his interview on the 6-1 News with Brian Dobson in September 2007 um, or 2006, excuse me. And um, this was the first explanation that he offered about, you know, these very sums of money that were were were, uh, were sort of sloshing around. And he gave this extraordinary bravura performance where he talked and, he, you know, expressed emotion about, you know, going through a difficult time and his friends rallied around him and they they, they gave him money because, you know, his finances were, were wrapped up in separating and divorcing from his wife some 20,000 pounds of this money was being put aside for the education of his of his two girls uh, his two daughters um Cecilia and Georgina and everybody came out of the, you know after after the interview everybody just felt really sorry for him and sort of said god why did we put him through that the poor man he obviously was going through you know a hard time it probably kind of bought him a lot of time really until the revelations piled up to the point where they couldn't be ignored anymore You've mentioned the bank account or not the non-existent bank account, but what for you was the biggest revelation of the tribunal for Bertie? Despite all the talk about the dig outs and winning things on horses and money on horses and bank accounts and sterling being lodged, the thing that did for him, that finished really his his uh, residency in government buildings was the evidence that was given by his former secretary, Gronje Karuth, who took to the stand in March 2008 now, you know, this is a woman who doesn't live in the in the public eye. She was a private uh, individual. And next thing she finds herself in front of this tribunal and she gave evidence, you know, that she had lodged sums of sterling into Bertie's bank account for him. And she got very upset in the court, giving the course of her evidence. I mean, this is a really intimidating situation to be in. You've got galleries of media furiously scribbling Every word she says, and she's realizing that she had, you know, she had huge loyalty to 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 Bertie Hearn, and she's probably realizing at the same time that everything she says, she's probably getting him into into more and more trouble. And she got really upset and very emotional, and it was a very difficult day. I was down there for her evidence, and we, I think, everybody came out going, that was just so hard. And it went down very badly in his constituency, I think, among, you know, people who lived in Dublin Central. And there was a feeling, fairly or unfairly, that Bertie had thrown Gronje Carew to the wolves. Now, he obviously denied this afterwards, but there was that feeling that by making her take the stand, 
that she he had exposed this woman to this ordeal. And there really was no way back after that. It was it. I think that's where political and public sentiment turned towards him. And really, it was only just a matter of when, not if after that. And that really within less than five or six weeks later, he was standing in the steps of government building announcing he was going. Yeah. And as as we said, like this is a long time. That's 97. We started talking about this and we've yes. c- come all the way up to 2008. Um, so it wasn't exactly a quick fall, but then in some ways it was a quick fall. <laughs> well, you see, yes, exactly. I mean, I you know, the, the, the man tribunal was the drip feed. It was drip, drip, drip. Um, it, it was the background noise, certainly to his probably the second half of his term from 2002 to 2007 and then just became noisier and noisier after 2007 until the noise was just unbearable and there was no escaping it. And, uh, you know, but up, you know, up to that point when it became the dominant story, you know, he was seen as a, you know, as, as in, on many levels as a massively successful uh, Taoiseach. And then the Matin Tribunal didn't publish its final, final report until 2012. It was the last drip. He had stepped down as Taoiseach in 2008, as a TD in 2011, and then finally a member of Fianna Fáil that year. We should say at this point, though, that the tribunal had found that Ahern did not truthfully account for payments of 165,000 Irish punts at the time made to accounts connected to him. Ahern rejected its findings, has always denied wrongdoing and points out that the Mahan Tribunal did not make any findings of corruption against him. With all of that then out of the way, Lise, let's look at that other track that you just mentioned, the successful Taoiseach. One of our reporters in the newsroom was going to an event featuring Bertie last week after the announcement of his return. And I got curious to look up his popularity ratings around the time she was born. She was, say, younger than us. Born in 1999, the year before was the Good Friday Agreement and his popularity ratings hit as high as 84%. Now, a lot of that is obviously because of the peace process. But what else accounts for that kind of satisfaction rating? Well, again, I think it was timing. As I said, there was sort of a mood of optimism, you know, and a kind of a feeling that things were looking up for Ireland. And he had that sort of ebullience that he recognised it. And he was also just really good at reading the mood on on the street. He was great. Uh, he had a way of just divining which way the wind was blowing and you kind of giving people what they want. Now, of course, that's not always the best strategy because, you, you know, governments that promise and parties that promise much and may deliver much. And then, you know, everybody has to reap the whirlwind afterwards. And you know, you could even see it, say, in when he appointed Charlie McCreevy as his finance minister. And at one stage, you know, Charlie McCreevy tried to kind of pull on, pull the fiscal brakes and go, you know, look, we need just to actually start doing a little bit of belt tightening here. And uh, Charlie McCreevy was promptly dispatched to Brussels. So there was this thing, this sort of notion that, no, no, we'll just spend and kind of give people what they want. And and keep the votes coming in because staying in power was was massively important to not just to Fianna Fáil, who saw themselves as the party of power, but they, you know, they had a leader in there that sort of understood that that need and that hunger for power and would basically formulate policies in order, you know, in order to keep that party in government buildings and everybody else at bay, you know, notwithstanding the results that it might have on the you know, on the, on the economy. So that was the economy, but we should talk a little bit about the Good Friday Agreement as well and his role in that peace process. Looking back now, what was his contribution? 
I've read a fair few books after that were written, say, by people who were involved in 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 the um, you know, in, they were actually in the room during the time of negotiations, and they might all have differing accounts. But I mean, the one thing they do say is that Bertie Ahern was a key component of this; that they wouldn't have got it over the line without him. And again, like that's a huge statement. It's a it huge. It would statement. not have happened without this. Yes, one I mean man. Jonathan Powell. I think who wrote one of the best books. I think it's called something like uh, "Great Hatred, Little Room," and he was one of Tony Blair's advisors. And he literally said that this would not have happened without him. And even though, of course, there was just a cast of people who had selflessly worked tirelessly towards peace, from John Hume to David Tremble and so on, there was something I think that Bertie Hearn brought to it. And again, this goes back to his skills, which began when he started as chief whip and continued towards negotiating um, the partnerships when he was uh, Labour minister. And it was he, he has this ability just to, somebody described it as to absorb enormous pressure. Like he'd sit in a room and various members of the unionist parties or Sinn Féin would literally just rant, rave, maybe get, you know, hurl personal insults at him and he would just absorb it all and just go, right, let's take it from here and let's, it was, he had an ability to sort of subsume his ego and leave it at the door. And he also had, you know, forged a close working relationship with Tony Blair as well, which again was key because they were both prepared to go that, you know, that extra distance. And I think that one of the things that made a huge difference was it got very fraught near the end. There was a lot of pressure been piled on, you know, the, on, by all the, the negotiators, even by the US government were saying Clinton was there going, President Clinton there, you got to get this over the line and so on. And it was very fraught coming towards the end of negotiations. And then his mother, Julia, died. And he was in London at the time, if I recall, part of negotiations. And he flew to Dublin for the funeral and then like flew straight back to, into negotiations, I think might maybe up in Belfast that same day. And that made a huge impression on all around the table because everybody knew that he was, you know, extremely close to his mother, Julia. And this was just seen as a part of his huge commitment to getting this across the table. And he just had this ability to reach out. I mean, there's a story told that first time he met Ian Paisley, um, he met him in the Irish, em- a formal meeting it was in the Irish embassy in London. And Ian Paisley, the two of them went behind closed doors and Ian Paisley starts uh, starts the meeting with a prayer and Bertie joins in. Even though it was he was a, it was a Catholic, you're joining in the Protestant prayer. He said, I kind of recognised it. And the two of them ended up talking about the values they shared and so on. So, he had this sort of ability just to kind of communicate with people and he always kept his eye on the main prize. So no matter, that's kind of what I'm saying. There's sort of two Bertie Hearns. There's that extraordinary Bertie that was able to to kind of bring an incredible focus. And then there was the sort of Bertie that wanted his party to stay in power and was reckless with, to, you know, with the, with the, uh, with the economy, um, you know, let the banks run riot this, of course, now also bled into, you know, the following administration under Brian Cowan. But, you know, the warning signs he always maintained after he stepped down that there was nobody came to him and warned him when there are documents littered with people going, you've got to slow down the economy, it's overheating, you've got to start reining in, you've got to, you know, look at regulation and so on. So um, it's very hard to, this is what I'm sort of, you know, trying to say that it's very hard to point to one Bertie Hearn. I mean, I remember when he was, he addressed again, he was the first Irish Taoiseach to address both Houses of Parliament. It was in the summer of 2007, just after the election. Might he have even just been just after the campaign or during it even. And 
I remember watching the speech. I was in my office in Leinster House, and in my press office in Leinster House, and being really struck at his delivery because there was no distat D's and O's. His, his delivery and his diction was absolutely crystal clear. And this was a long involved and a really, really good speech. And he never stumbled once. And you're kind of going, well, he can do the statesman when it suited him. And uh, it might have been that night that he then was back canvassing. People saw the clips of that on 6-1 News and then there was a knock on the door and they opened it and there was Bertie going, how are you? Things so they were the seeing next election. Two, two Berties in one day. They were literally seeing him in the space of five minutes. <laughs> and, you know, to, so that was the sort of the ambivalence. I mean, you know, the famous Church Tillian quote about, you know, a riddle inside an enigma wrapped in a mystery, you know, which he obviously said about the Soviet Union. Well, there was a little bit about that about him, but he was undeniably good at understanding what people wanted. Again, the 2007 election, he, they, Fianna Fáil were in the trenches. They were absolutely, all the opinion polls had said they're goosed. They're absolutely gone. This was Fine Gael and Labour to, Labour's to lose. The figures were terrible. Bertie was getting whaled on about, you know, tribunal matters and kind of disappeared for half the campaign. And I went out on a canvas with him about maybe a week before the election in Dublin, and everybody said to me, oh, he's a broken man. And I turned up. There he was, you know, tail up, whistling away, shaking hands, looking absolutely like a man with no cares in the world. And I thought to myself, that's insane. What? Why? And everybody around him had long faces. And that the next day, uh, an opinion poll came out, I'm fairly sure in the Irish Times, that cho- total was a total game changer. There was a, suddenly showed a dramatic swing back towards Fianna Fáil. Now, there's no way he would have known about the poll because, you know, as you know, uh, you know, newspaper po- or polls Guarded. are guarded. <laughs> but somehow he had divined that there was a swing back. He must have been getting it on the ground because he was so tuned into, into you know, what people were feeling. Selling your property? Ask your estate agent for a daft advantage ad today for maximum visibility, best results and best price for your property. When you talk about Bertie like that in his absolute element in Dublin Central, you know, meeting constituents, it kind of makes you think, what has he been doing for the last 10 years, not even being a member of a political party? Yeah, he he really didn't. He he stepped, you know, he, he that was it. He was out in the cold and he busied himself. Um, I think obviously being smart, he realised that if he had any chance of rehabilitation, it was going to lie at the root of the good, you know, things related to the Good Friday Agreement rather than the economy. So, you know, you didn't see him popping up on, you know, the, you know, on the boards of any banks or anything like that. He went the conflict resolution route and he kind of busied himself, I think, with the Clinton initiative and got involved in a lot of conflict resolution think tanks and so on. And you know, and peace initiatives. And he kind of kept a low profile and just sort of worked on on that side of rehabilitating himself as a sort of a statesman. And there's no doubt about it. Um, he was he was good at this. And Brexit, I mean, he's probably the only Irish politician or Irishman or Irish citizen that actually was benefited by Brexit 
because that really was the sort of the, the, the beginning of the road back. Be- next thing, having been off the airwaves for years, apart obviously from the infamous uh, News of the World ad where he popped out of the uh, <laughs> 2010 when he kind of popped out of the cupboard and mortified us all. If anyone doesn't know what Lee's talking about, YouTube it. Yes, YouTube <laughs> it and prepare yourself. Um, but, you know, he really had kept a fairly low profile on the media front. But of course, Brexit happened. And next thing, he's all over the airwaves and he is giving, you know, fairly thoughtful this is what I used to call him the British whisperer because he genuinely seemed to have a great line into, you know, what British people and British politicians were thinking. He turned up in a couple of um, giving uh, a couple of committees in Westminster and sort of schooling them on what, you know, what this means to Ireland and so on. So he, suddenly he became busy again and suddenly he became relevant again because obviously the whole swathe of incredibly complex matters that revolved around Brexit and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And next thing, he was useful again. And he was getting, I know for a fact, you know, calls would be made to him just by people who might be going into certain negotiations or talks or meetings to sort of say, you know, what's your read on this? So next thing, Bertie's useful again. So I think really given his and you know he also had the sense really not to apart from the odd sort of popping over the parapet and maybe having a snipe about something but you know or to express how kind of hard done by he felt by being um you know he, the blame been heaped on him for the the, the economic crash um you know he did, otherwise he kind of really stayed out of it and i think it's probably a lot of that was he didn't want to remind people of the role in case they suddenly said oh let's have a haul him into the rockless committee and explain himself so he chose very carefully his path back and I think his arrival back on in sort of into the party won't be a huge surprise. But his rehabilitation has been slow. I mean, there was, you know, when he left, there was bad feeling. You know, there was a lot of bad feeling towards him in the party. And he was seen as, you know, as somebody who had to go before they, the party could start rebuilding themselves. So it is, it's kind of, it's both remarkable and inevitable that he's back. Yeah, and 10 years then, how would it have happened? Did they ask him or did he ask them? This is a good question. Uh, I I mean, this was, had been dangled before him, you know, before. And he, I think back in as far back as 2016, perhaps. And, you know, he's taken his time to to return. But, you know, he he also, I think, just resigned before he out of the, from the party, just before he was pushed. I mean, it was one of those things he hopped over the side before they kind of prodded him along the, the you know, the gangplank uh, with at the tip of a, of a scabbard. And I think there was a feeling, there was probably under discussion in the party, there would be uh, a feeling that he has done his time on the naughty step. He has turned himself into, you know, a statesman. Um, he's turned himself into somebody that could be useful again to the party. I mean, let's face it, this is a party that's I mean, Fianna Fáil, their vote in Dublin particularly has completely collapsed. I mean, it really has. I mean, they had, what, 11 TDs or something returned in the last, in Dublin in the last election. There hasn't been a, a Fianna Fáil TD in Dublin Central for 12 years. They, I don't think they got a first preference vote in Dublin at all. I mean, you know, the party is in disarray in the capital, which they once absolutely owned. So perhaps there's a feeling that he could be brought in to do what he did, you know, well and go out and, and sort of shake hands and try and revive the grassroots 
the moribund kind of party coming and so on and try and kind of get Dublin back up and running again. Yeah, because that's an aspect that probably we don't dive into a huge amount in the media, that there's the parliamentary party. So the people that you know, that you see, the TDs and the senators or whatever. And then there's the, the normal party members, the grassroots members. Is he still more popular with the grassroots members than maybe the heads we see being asked, are you welcoming Bertie back with open arms? It's hard to know, to be honest with you. And I'd say the proof of that will be like, you know, will will probably emerge if he starts taking a more active view, because, you know, there would be still a large body of people that go. Not only did, you know, was he ultimately responsible for as finance minister first and then as Taoiseach of allowing the economy to overheat, of allowing the banks to run riot, of being too close to, of having far too close uh, a relationship between government and property developers. And it was on his watch that a lot of this happened and exposed the country. And even though Brian Cowan obviously took a lot of the blame because he was the sitting Taoiseach at the time, there'd still be a lot of people that would have a bad taste in the mouth over that. And particularly because he never really turned around and said, yeah, look, I absolutely cocked up, lads. He never really did that. But then, and this is going back to the weird dichotomy, there would be a lot of people that said, yes, that's all that is absolutely true. But we have peace in the North and peace agreements that last. And of course, the reason that he's coming back now is because we are coming up to the 25th anniversary of this of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement on the 10th of April 2018. And, you know, it has this is a piece that, yes, it's been there's been fragile bits and it's broken down and it seems fraught, but the peace has lasted. And, you know, brokering a peace agreement that has actually taken root you know, is is something, is something to behold. And I think nobody, everybody recognises that. And perhaps the party are also looking at the possibility down the road. I mean, Sinn Féin are obviously uh, extremely keen to have a a, a, you know, a border poll. And perhaps, you know, Fianna Fáil would like to have someone with, you know, Bertie's experience with dealing with both sides of the border and with the, the British in, in their midst. Is that his motivation? He wants to be part of Fianna Fáil when these Good Friday Agreements celebrations or commemorations are happening? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, they, they couldn't really have happened without him anyway, but I think he would rather be doing them from within the inside the Fianna Fáil fold than not. And my my own suspicion is, I mean, I know there is an awful lot of talk, you know, everybody went, oh, is Bertie going to run for the Aris? Now, you know, this is... I mean, he, that was going to be my next question. Oh, Thank you. Answer it. There's well, a lot there of we talk go. about moving, it. Sw- moving smoothly Does on. Does he have any interest? Again, it's hard to know. I mean, he's, I suspect not. My, my own, that this is my own take. Now, I could be completely wrong on this. I know he was asked the question back in 2018 and I think kind of went, ah, I'll think, I'll think about it. And... I'm not sure. Now, again, if Jerry Adams were to throw his chapeau into the ring, which, you know, there is some talk of that, uh, I think that maybe he could be seen as a heavyweight that to go up against him. But I'm not sure either of those things is going to happen. I I begin to wonder maybe would he just wants to carve out, keep carving out the role he has, become more of the elder statesman, be somebody that could, rec- you know, represent them, represent the party in some kind of, you know, either peacekeeping or keep Brexit going, you know. Tr- I mean, just say, we'll just say, let's, it's Valentine's Day, let's have a, th- a warm, fuzzy thought here. Um, that the Brexit, that the, you know, the, the British government got or the British got serious about trying to backtrack on Brexit. 
no, who better then to kind of pave the way and, and go, lads, there is a way back, you know, for you than to have some a familiar, warm, familiar, fuzzy, friendly face like Bertie waiting for them saying, come back, we missed you. So there are possibilities. The Aris, I'm not so sure, because I think if he's going to run for the Aris, he look, he knows what a zoo the Aris is. I mean, he th- his worst ever failure as a campaign manager was he was was um, as campaign manager for Brian Lennon back in the 1990 um, presidential election. And of course, that ended in absolute, well, it, it ended in disaster for the party. But of course, there was the election of Mary Robinson and he was, that was seen as a black mark against him. So he knows exactly how bruising. They are uh, dirty they elections are, they as are well. They are dirty elections. And you can be absolutely guaranteed if he decided to run every single agonising bit of the Mahan Tribunal would be brought up and flung right back in his face. Um, so I'm not sure he wants to go that road at all. And the numbers may not be there for him at the end of the day if that happens. That, yeah, I mean, you know, if people are just reminded of that, I mean, people, you know, of, of and of his role in the economy, I don't think on balance his role as, you know, a, a major architect of the uh, of the signing of the Good Friday Agreement would be enough to kind of to redress the balance of the other things. And it would be, I mean, these are dirty contests and they all kind of all is passed and everything would be raked up and thrown against him. And I don't think he'd get away with the second, uh, you know, interview with, with the soft interview with Brian Dobson kind of, you know, looking doughy eyed into the camera. But is Dublin Central different? Could he make a difference to Fianna Fáil's numbers in Dublin Central? And then could that have a knock on effect to Fianna Fáil's numbers elsewhere? Could he, you know, help stage an unlikely Fianna Fáil comeback with Bertie somewhere in the mix? Well, Dublin Central, I mean, it's always been a dogfight of a constituency. It really is. It's always been, you know, absolutely massively fought and um, Fianna Fáil Senator now, Mary Fitzpatrick, fought there was titanic battles and dirty tricks and leaflet drops the night before the election and all kinds of shenanigans went on um, there. So, you know, he knows how to, he knows about hand-to-hand combat up and down the streets of of, uh, Drumcondra and Whitehall. Um, Could he revive? Again, it's hard to know. I Another way of asking this might be, would Mary Lou be worried? No, I don't think Mary Lou would be particularly worried. Um, She'd certainly be sort of, she's safe as a house if she wants to bring a second. But her bringing a second candidate. Second candidate in, that could change the game. Having Bertie back and whipping up the troops and with the right candidate and so on, possibly. I, yeah, I think they're still think that maybe the old Bertie Gold just is still there, that sort of little bit of magic that he used to sprinkle over the, you know, the, the hustings when he was out on them. I think they sort of still hope that maybe that might be out there. And if nothing else, perhaps he could just come in as a trainer and just teach them, you know, teach the young books that fancy their chances at exactly how to lead with the elbow and go in and win a seat. Um, because, you know, Fianna Fáil could do with that. It's a, it's a party that's sort of you know, just bumping along and uh, maybe they're just kind of hoping that, you know, he could some kind of, you know, combat school or something up in we'll give Londra. We'll give Fianna Fáil advisors that one for free. These, <laughs> it's a bit early to get excited about general elections, but thank you very much for coming in and going through the history books about Bertie Ahern. Thanks, Sinead. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Head to www.advantage.daft.ie today for more info on the best way to sell your home in Ireland. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Lise for joining us. 
This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people can discover it, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.